17. <clears throat> you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you say? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Amen.
I generally find that uh, the second day of a church camp is when everyone's feeling a little bit more weary. Um, and uh, so my talks are a little bit shorter today and that's a mercy towards you, see? So that <laughs> you haven't got to concentrate for so long and, and I don't have to speak for so long. I'm feeling a little bit leery-eyed this morning myself due to some late-night revellers. So. Well, reading Malachi chapter 3, uh, it reminds me of, a, of a, a true story that I read about a Malaysian steak charmer <coughs> who got far more than he expected from his snake. Uh, 23-year-old Anbarasan uh, was performing at a fair on the Indonesian island of Batam, um, which is near Singapore. And after a small crowd gathered around, he began to his usual routine of uh, calling his cobra out of its basket. But this day, the snake decided uh, that it wasn't going to come. It was unusually lazy this morning, and uh, it refused. And this was humiliating for and Barisan, uh, not to mention bad for business. Uh, thinking that the cobra was enjoying the basket too much, he lifted the snake out of the basket and put it on the ground. Uh, still the cobra did not lift its head and, uh, and Barisan, as Ambarasan played his instrument. I guess even cobras get a little bit bored with show business after a while. Uh, I remember seeing a snake charmer in India poking his cobra with his punji to, to try and get it moving. So it must be a, a common problem. Well, Anbarasan thought that uh, he would liven up his cobra uh, by pulling its tail. And that worked. Uh, and without warning, the cobra rose up and bit him on the hand. He was admitted to hospital, but he died three hours later. In Malachi chapter 3, God's people are calling out to God for his justice. God doesn't seem to be moving. God doesn't seem to be responding. They feel that God is holding back. God is definitely not doing what they expected he should do. Where is the God of justice? They cry at the end of, of uh, chapter 2. And God says, look out. Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Uh, as we'll see in a moment, God's people are likely to get far more from God than they bargained for. But let me say that this passage is more about God's blessing than his bite. And its main lesson is that those who put their trust in God will receive far more than they could ever hope for or expect. Now, perhaps chapter 3 is the climax of the book, uh, though there's a fair bit more uh, action to come yet in chapter 4. We've seen on our way through Malachi so far <coughs> that the spiritual life of Israel is dreadful. Uh, God's people have pretty much lost touch with God. Uh, they're taking him for granted. Nothing demonstrates that more than the, the contemptible sacrifices that they are bringing to the temple. Their church life has deteriorated into a, into a kind of a formal ceremony in which they just go through the motions without hardly thinking about God at all and they care little for each other. Their marriages look no different 
from the pagans around them. And this is the way that they are treating God, and this is why they feel out of touch with God. And see how even their sense of justice is distorted. Remember, this is about 450 BC. The exiles have returned from Babylon. Jerusalem has been rebuilt. The temple's been rebuilt. But it's also inferior to how things used to be, as far as they're concerned. There's been no supernatural filling of the new temple with God's glory as it was in the days of, of Solomon. Why won't God visit the temple like he did in former times? The Persians are still running the country. The people are disillusioned and, and they're not trusting God. And this is all reflected in their coffee shop conversations. Look near the end of chapter 2 at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or well, where is the God of justice? It's quite a modern book, Malachi, isn't it? This, this is the age-old dilemma of why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why does Bashar al-Assad of Syria last so long in power? Uh, why, do our society, why is our society going backwards morally and God appears to be doing so little to stop it? Why has God allowed that child to get cancer? How is it that drug addicts and welfare cheats are breeding like rabbits and the decent Christian couples are, are, are struggling to conceive? And particularly in Israel at the time, why hasn't God done something about the Persians? Why are they here? Why are they running our country? If this is God's land, where is the God of justice? They mumble as they sip their lattes. Now, these are questions of justice that must be raised. And I don't think God even minds us struggling with the fact that things are happening right under his nose that are clearly unjust. Jeremiah did it, didn't he? He raised issues of justice. So did Habakkuk. God didn't strike them down with lightning. But you see, the trouble here is that this grumbling is not coming from a true sense of justice. It's not coming for, from a love for God's glory and his reputation. Its origin is discontent with God, dissatisfaction with God's provision. In Malachi's day, it was coming from self-righteous church members. And let's face it, we can be a bit like that who can see the evils around them with 20-20 vision, but they are blind to their own sin. And God is so annoyed by this hypocritical carping that he responds in chapter 3, See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking, the Lord that you're calling out for, will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? As a matter of fact, says God, I am coming. I am coming in justice, but not the way that you expect. There are two messengers spoken of here uh, who the prophet says are coming. Uh, the, the first messenger, says Malachi, will prepare the way for God's coming. 
In Matthew 11, verse 10, Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist, and he says, quoting Malachi 3 and verse 1, This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So there's no doubt at all that the first messenger is John the Baptist that's being spoken of in Malachi. And so that makes it very easy then to identify the second messenger, uh, the messenger of the covenant. It's got to be the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is coming, says Malachi, to deal with all of the evil and injustice in the world, but not initially in the way that these grumblers expect. For he will begin, in fact, not with the world, but with the people of God, the church, starting with its leadership, symbolised by the Levites in verse 3. And this is why Malachi says to the church of his day, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner in, uh, and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Now, as you probably know, the, the refiner of silver uh, would heat the metal in a furnace until it melted and then the impurities, the, the rubbish material, or the dross as it's called, would float to the top of the molten metal. And it would then be scooped off with a, la uh, a label or, or blown off with bellows. And the refiner would know that the silver was pure when he could look at the, the molten metal and see his own reflection. He would know then that he, he's got rid of all the dross and he's got pure silver. God wants to see his own reflection in you. His own character, his own likeness reflected in your life, in your behaviour. And so verse 3 tells us that the purpose of Jesus' coming is to restore men and women to God. To have those who will bring offerings of righteousness. God's priority is to raise up women and men who love him and treat him with the honour that he deserves. Why is that more important to God than immediately sorting out all of the injustice in the world? Well, of course, it's because unless God acts to deal with our sin, unless God intervenes to provide a way back to him that is permanent and effective, there'll be no future for the world. What's the, per what's the point of sorting out the injustice if there is no future for the world, if there's no future for any of us? But don't get me wrong, uh, God tells us that he is concerned with the injustice and evil in the world. Of course he is. And of course he is restraining it and he's dealing with it finally on the day of judgment and as we will see to, uh, in our uh, last talk after morning tea. But it was first of all the holiness of his people that Jesus came into the world uh, to obtain. Twice in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul stresses this point. He writes in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. God says, you're worried about what's going on out there, and rightly so to an extent. I don't mind you raising those questions about justice. 
But the greater injustice is the way that I am treated and so often taken for granted. And so the real question is not what is God doing about the evil out there, but are you and I reflecting his holiness in our lives and in the way that we treat other people? In Israel, the answer, as we've already seen, was a decisive no. Israel is calling on God to act, but are they prepared for what God will actually do? The implication of verse 2 is that some will not be able to stand when God purifies his church. Some people who refuse to repent, uh, who will not submit to God's rule, will be like the dross in the refiner's fire and they will be removed. Verse 5 seems to be a warning that God was judging the church even then as Malachi was speaking. So I will come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. It's very easy for you and me to concentrate on the evils that are happening out in the world, isn't it? To shake our heads in disgust at the immorality to protest the injustice from the comfort of our TV room. It can be a very useful way of diverting attention away from our own sin and our, even our own neglect of justice. So Israel has asked for God's justice, but it's clear they don't realise what they're actually asking for. God's justice will come, and it will come first of all through the one who will transform God's people by his own sacrificial death on the cross. But that's not the only way in which Malachi reveals the, su the surprising excess of God. For in verses 6 to 12, we see that God delights to bless, to bless with excess. If God were a human father, we might even say that he's spoiling his children. So now his warning of judgment is balanced by this invitation to receive his mercy. For those who repent and return to him will be overwhelmed by his grace. Have a look at verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. There are parts of Malachi that are quite hard to translate and uh, there's some question about the translation of verse 6 which could be translated, I the Lord do not change so you too have not ceased to be the sons of Jacob. In other words, God does not change and Jacob, that's Israel, has not changed either. They're just as wayward as they've, as they've always been. But either way that you translate it, verse 6 emphasises God's grace. Jacob has not got what it deserved for turning away from God and disobeying him. And see how this statement of God's constant love on the one hand and Israel's rebellion on the other leads to a wonderful invitation. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. What an incredible invitation. Considering how the people have treated God. 
Why would God want them back? Why would he want you back? Uh, Max Licardo tells a story about a poor Brazilian widow and her daughter Christina. Um, maybe you've heard the story before. Uh, I think it's true. Christina has run away from her loving and devoted mother. Uh, she's reached the age of about 16 or 17. They're living in a, a dusty old village and, and she hates it. And uh, they've had a really hard life because um, Christina's father died when she was young. Maria's done her best to, to raise her daughter. Um, but Christina rejects the, the, the traditional village you know, view that at about 16 or 17, a girl would get married and settle down in the village and have children. She longs to go to the city. And uh, one day, Maria wakes up and finds that Christina's bed is empty. And she knows immediately where she's gone. She's gone to the city. And uh, so Maria gets what money she has together uh, in order to, to go and search for her daughter. On her way to the big city, she stops and, uh, into, and goes into one of those little photo booths where you can you know, take passport photos of yourself. And she uses a mu as much of her money as she can to uh, produce these photos of herself. She gets to the city. She travels around by bus looking in every spot where a girl might be involved in prostitution because she figures that that's what's happened to Christina. And she can't find her. She packs up her things and heads back to the little village. But one day, uh, tired and afraid and depressed, Christina walks down the stairs of the cheap hotel in which she's been living. And to her great surprise, she sees a photo of her mother taped to the mirror in the lobby. She pulls the photo off the, off the mirror and she turns it over and finds this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, I still love you. Please come home. And God is saying this to you if you've slipped away from him. Uh, he's making that invitation to you if you've never put your trust in Jesus. Um, if, if you're one who has been neglecting God, if you've been taking God a bit for granted, he's saying, return to me. But incredibly, some people in the church still don't get it. They think God has walked away from them, that God has let them down. And because their hearts are so hard, they can't see that they've taken God for granted. And some in the church are asking, well, what do we need to do to return to you, God? They still haven't got it. And God says, well, you can stop robbing me with your, of your, your tithes and offerings. That would be a good start. You see, in the Old Testament, God had told his people that to show their gratitude and honour to him, they were to give a, a tenth of their income or their produce or whatever to him. Uh, they were to bring it to the temple. The offerings portion went to support the priests. So that if, if there was too little in the temple bank account, the priests would have to leave the temple and go out to work. Part of the tithe was used to support the poor, such as widows and orphans and aliens, refugees. 
But the people are giving something less, maybe much less than what was honouring to God. And they still expect that God should bless them. I wonder if you've ever been robbed. Um, I, I guess some of you have. But have you ever been robbed by somebody that you know? Uh, when Joy and I lived in Sydney, we made an agreement with our neighbour, next door neighbour, to build a, a new fence between us. And our, uh, our neighbour agreed to pay half the cost. And so I organised the fence and, um, and I paid the contractor in full. But when I went next door to my neighbour with the bill to collect his half share, guess what? He refused. That there may be food in my house. There wasn't even enough food to feed the priests. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that you will not have room enough for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God is saying, I just love to bless my people. Test me and, and see if that's not true. Of course, under the old covenant, God's blessing was related directly to his promises to Abraham concerning the land and you know, abundant children and protection from enemies and abundant crops and all that sort of thing. We're under the new covenant. We're not Israel. So God is not promising here to bless your business necessarily. Or, or even your veggie garden. God may bless you financially. He may not. But in terms of the new covenant based on the saving work of Jesus, God does promise to bless us with every spiritual blessing that Jesus has obtained for us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You know the passage. Can you believe the privilege and the wonder of being adopted as God's children and spoiled with every blessing that God can think of? What a privilege we have to share in bringing that blessing to people who do not yet know Jesus. By resourcing the church, by resourcing the work of cross-cultural mission, you know, through APWM or uh, whatever it is, whatever a group that you want to support around the world. God invites you to test him and he will bless you far more than you could ever expect. Return to me and I will return to you. <coughs> well, I don't know about you, but I was greatly relieved uh, to see that finally there is a faithful response from at least some of the people within Israel. Did you notice that? God has been rebuking the church through his prophet and those who truly feared the Lord, that is, those who honoured and revered him, have begun to take this word seriously. They've taken the rebuke seriously. It's not wrong to question why bad things happen, but it's a wicked thing to accuse God of failure, of holding out on us. And in verse 16, Malachi tells us that some of the people became convicted about the disgusting way that they were talking about God and taking him for granted. God listens and hears and he forgives. 
And he has their names recorded on a scroll which records the names of those who fear God, that is, who, who bow humbly before him and honour his name. And just look at how God rejoices over them. Verse 17, They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his own son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Can you hear God rejoicing over his people? And here God speaks of a day when he will gather all of his people, including us. They are his treasure, and so he will forgive them. Can you see what God calls, the, calls us in verse 17? His treasured possession. Isn't that amazing? So much so that less than 500 years later, came, uh, God came in the person of Jesus and suffered and bled and died in our place and in the place of you know, those that were responding in the day of Malachi. It's not cheap love, is it? It's not cheap forgiveness because it cost Jesus everything. What an incredibly generous and gracious God. So why would you or I take him for granted? Uh, why would we accuse him of injustice? Why would we steal from him? For those who put their trust in Jesus discover that God's grace is far greater, far richer than we could ever expect. So listen to what God is saying to us through his prophet Malachi and return to him in whatever way God is speaking to you this morning. Let's rejoice together in our amazing God and say with the Apostle Paul as he writes in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, who, who, who treats us with excess, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Um, well, I'll close in prayer. Our gracious and generous God, uh, we, we just want to pause and, and thank you that uh, you treat us so differently to what we deserve, so much better, the opposite to what we deserve. And uh, so in that respect, we don't, we don't get what we expect. Um, please keep us from ever thinking in terms that your people in the day of Malachi were thinking. That you're a God who doesn't care much about justice. That uh, we sh should be somehow embarrassed by what's happening in the world because our God is just standing by twiddling his thumbs. For we know that's not true, that you have acted, that Jesus has come, that you are at work in the world making for yourself a people who will honour you and live for you. And the day is surely coming when you will bring to account every injustice. So help us to honour you, to appreciate your goodness and your generosity, to love you and, and serve you with everything that we have. Uh, help us to find the right balance between providing for ourselves and making provision for 
the building of your kingdom. And so uh, help us to return to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.